Many of the pleasures of life and of travel come in a bottle. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, I want to learn more about appreciating fine wine. So I've invited a couple of friends into the studio, and they've brought some great teaching aids, a couple bottles of their best. My Italian friend, Cecilia Botai, runs a family vineyard in Umbria, on land that's produced some of the world's finest grapes for centuries. You can have it anytime you feel like having a nice glass of wine. It's a very relaxing wine. It has to be an easy, well-done, pleasant wine. And Ruth Arista runs a wine shop in my hometown. Together, they're going to teach us what to look for when tasting wine and explain some of the differences between visiting wineries in Europe and in North America. Wine Tasting 101 promises to be a good time in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Like a masterful painting or an exquisite aria, a good glass of wine is one of the real pleasures of life. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In many places we travel, it seems life revolves around the production and appreciation of fine wine. And in those places, to really understand the culture, you need to understand the wine. So, on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting set up for a classroom experience that comes with a great bouquet. Wine Tasting 101. My Italian friend, Cecilia Botai, and my local wine merchant, Ruth Arista, have dropped into our studio with a picnic basket, and inside are a couple of bottles from Cecilia's family winery in Umbria. These two wine connoisseurs will teach the fine points of wine appreciation. Together, we'll give our taste buds an enjoyable workout. The wine cellar will open in just a few minutes. But first, let's see who's on the line at 877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Scott from Davis, California. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm planning a family trip to uh, northern Italy. Ooh, good. And I have two boys who are nine and six. Uh huh. Or they will be nine and six. Mm-hmm. And I'd like some advice on family friendly activities and destinations and coping strategies for traveling with young kids. Well, you know, a, a nine and six year old, and you're smart, Scott, to be working your kids into your itinerary planning because the worst thing for parents to do is to think they can just give them a gelato and tell them to come to the museum with them, you know? And uh, I would say uh, it would be great to to collect all the different options you have and get the boys together and page through stuff. Get some photo books about uh, North Italy. You've got, for instance, um, the um, the Iceman up in uh, uh, Bolzano, which mm-hmm. is a guy who was discovered uh, centuries and centuries ago, and he's all frozen. And today we can get a look at what uh, prehistoric people looked like and how they dressed and everything, and the kids would find that really interesting. Uh, of course, Venice is a wonderland for kids. One of the best vacations my wife and I ever had with our kids, when they were at about this age, I believe it was about nine and six, we spent uh, we split a 10-day vacation between Venice and the Cinque Terre, one train ride collect- connecting, and we had an apartment in Venice where we could cook our own breakfast and have a base for, during the day. And uh, it was great to let the kids run a little wild in Venice. They can't get run over by cars. I suppose they could <laughs> drown, but they can't get run over by cars, you know. And uh, Venice is just great for kids, uh, feeding the pigeons, you know, and climbing the church towers and just exploring the back streets of that town. And then, of course, you go to the Cinque Terre, and you got all these wonderful hikes and all this wonderful swimming and all the, the, the fun food to eat and the castles to climb. That would make a lot of sense. And lastly, do you have any recommendations on good travel guides for traveling with kids? Um, there is a good book for travel with kids in general called Take Your Kids to Europe by Cynthia Harriman. Uh-huh. And I just love that book. It's full of wisdom. And she's uh, she's just really, uh, to me, just the the ultimate sort of uh, travel with kids author. Great. And then there are, if you go to your local travel bookstore or look up on the web, there are children's books to various great spots in Europe, you know, Children's Guide to Venice or Florence or whatever. Right. Boy, anything you could do like that, it's just it's just going to be uh, really worthwhile. Okay. By the way, my very favorite castle interior of all of Europe is just north of Venice uh, in Vipatino. Uh-huh. It's Reifenstein Castle. Mm-hmm. And uh, the noble family still lives there. And it's just two or three times a day they open their gates and let tourists walk through. And if your kids are into medieval fortifications oh, yeah. and torture dungeons and all that kind of stuff, I think Reifenstein Castle is a good one to check out. All right, Scott, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye. Joseph in Long Island, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Uh, my 
my wife and I were going to a wedding in County Cavan and, uh, in Ireland. Uh-huh. Uh, like they were going to get a car once we land at uh, Dublin. Uh, I'd like your thoughts on the driving and uh, also communications by phone, or what would you recommend? Well, in Ireland, <laughs> driving in Ireland is so interesting because it's just a charming time warp kind of place in so many ways. I mean, it's uh, there's just a couple million people on the whole island, and you rarely have any traffic problems at all except for, for farm vehicles or... Um, uh, the the fact the, the the bad thing about driving is not the traffic but it's the narrow roads and all the distractions scenically you know um, right. you're gonna so don't think that you can hop on the autobahn and get from A to B in a flash it's gonna take you a fair amount of time to get from A to B in Ireland and the important thing is just not to push it I remember when I was in Ireland I used to push it from a speed point of view and it made me a nervous wreck and it's actually quite quite dangerous because uh, it's um, there's potholes there's bad drivers there's uh, you know, it's just, you take it easy in Ireland. It's just in keeping with the culture. As far as communications goes, Ireland is now, well, it's more expensive than England, which is shocking to a lot of people. It's more, it's got a higher per capita income than England now, which is the first time in history that's happened. And if you like underdogs, that's, I suppose, good news. What comes with that is easier communication. And, uh, you know, there's cell phones, there's cyber cafes, there's uh, um, uh, B&Bs that, uh, in the middle of nowhere that, that function perfectly well with their cell phones and their internet and so on. So uh, the communication in Ireland is quite easy. The first thing I do when I get into any country is buy an international phone card. And that costs five euros. It's six or seven dollars. And it gives you mm, 200 minutes at a minimum of calling the United States from a phone booth or from your hotel. And a lot of people don't realize that you can also use it in phone booths to make local calls or calls to other countries in Europe. You just have to, it's tedious because you have to dial in your access number and then your personal code. But uh, it certainly gives you uh, wall-to-wall uh, phone usage around uh, the country you're traveling in. And where do you get the cards? You buy the card at any little newsstand or kiosk. Uh, so you want to pick it up. When you're in a big city or at an airport, you want to kind of make a point to get it there because it's easier to find it there than in some little village on the south coast, you know. And when you buy this car- card anywhere in Europe, the international phone card, remember you don't need the physical card. You have the number and it's the 800 access number and then your personal, uh, uh, you know, secret code. You can give that to anybody else and they can share it. Uh, before you leave the country, you can give it away. You write it down in your uh, pocket and you don't have to carry the card with you. You can share it with all your travel partners. You see a traveler that wants to use it, give it to him because I'm not going to talk uh, 200 minutes on it on my four days in Ireland or something. So, you know, you can share it. But it's uh, that is so much cheaper than, uh, you know, paying the phone bill at the hotel or using the uh, US, uh, USA Direct services by Sprint and MCI and so on. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, how about any hints about B&Bs? After the wedding, we'd like to take a, a drive around the North Country to the West Coast. The North Country meaning Donegal or Northern Ireland? Uh, Northern Ireland. Oh, I love Northern Ireland. Well, um, you know, I write a book on it that I just love. My The Rick Steves Ireland uh, 2005 book includes the North. It's a matter of principle for me. You can't say you've really seen Ireland unless you see the Northern Ireland as well as the Republic of Ireland. Perfectly safe. Talk to the car rental people about any complications from driving your car up there and so on. Shouldn't be any problem. Uh, as soon as you cross the border, you get into this uh, uh, motorway kind of stuff that is a, uh, part of the, our United Kingdom, and that means you can drive quite fast in Northern Ireland. And I would make a, I'd make a beeline for the North Coast. That's where the real charm is in Northern Ireland. And there are plenty of B&Bs there. When you've got the mobility of a car... That means you can be a little more gamey about not committing yourself to reservations because with a car you can drive down the road and, and go to the next village and so on. And you can be quite confident that you can find a, a very comfortable place to stay, stay at a good price just by uh, playing it by ear. Any uh, particular hints about the B&Bs that you well, the, B- the B&Bs, uh, the best hint I would say is it's an opportunity to meet uh, people who are opening up their house to travelers, not only to supplement their domestic budget, but they enjoy talking to people from around the world. And we are very interesting people these days, and I think it's very important for Americans, as they travel, take with them a Ziploc baggie full of show-and-tell items, uh, pictures of your your town, your mountain, your family, your church, your school, your work, your home, your kids, your grandkids, whatever, and uh, have a, be eager to share. And they'll pour you a, a cup of tea and you can talk about what it's like and they'll tell you about their relatives that are just down the road from your place in America and so on. It's a beautiful opportunity that a lot of people miss out on is a chance to consider their B&B experience also a great chance to have friends in a place where you might not know anybody otherwise. 
a and, good idea. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, uh, they think about American B&Bs, and American B&Bs are understandably more expensive than simple hotels because it's just piles of pillows and all sorts of jams and baskets of this and baskets of that. They're really over the top. And uh, some people like that, and you pay for it. In Britain and in Ireland and most of Europe, the B&Bs are much more spartan and simple. And uh, it's just a way to afford traveling without staying in an expensive hotel. So I find B&Bs give you, you know, uh, the same comfort for about half the price of a hotel. And what you do get is double the cultural intimacy uh, compared to a hotel experience. And that's really what makes the B&Bs a particularly good value. Hmm. Uh, could you give me just uh, one or two ideas on something that you would like to see in the North? In the North, I would, well, I'm really interested in political struggles and so on. And if I was in the North, I would go to Derry or London Derry, depending on your politics. And I would go to different pubs there. Some pubs cater to Catholics and some pubs cater to Protestants. Perfectly safe. I mean, you just don't want to sing Catholic songs in Protestant pubs, you know. And, and they, they have a thing about colors, orange and green. It's like gang colors in certain parts of the United States. And it's just not smart to wear orange or green if, if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but I love the political murals. Uh, in Ireland, I was just in El Salvador. Anywhere I go, I like political murals. It's an f- art form for me. It's a, it's a culture screaming. And uh, when you go to Londonderry, you'll find that rough edge of Irish culture. And there you'll have a chance to talk to people. There's all sorts of guided tours you can take in Derry to learn about the troubles. You go to the pubs. People love to talk in the pubs. A pub is a public house. You go there for a chance to chat. And uh, anybody who, uh, if you if you sit at the table, that means you're kind of private. If you sit at the bar on a stool, that is an indication that you are there to meet a friend, make a friend, meet a stranger, and get involved in a conversation. That's the magic charm of Ireland that you just don't find elsewhere in Europe. And uh, that's I, just talking about it right now makes me want to go to Ireland and uh, drop by a pub. <laughs> Sounds All right? good. Sounds good. Good luck on your trip, Joseph, and thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. All right. Happy travels. Right on. An email from Sue in Langley, Washington, talks about her favorite cocktail. Best cocktail in the world is in Vancouver, B.C., a bourbon sour at the Parkside on Harrow Street near Stanley Park. It includes Knob Creek bourbon, fresh lemon juice, and Cointreau shaken into a beautiful glass. My husband and I have tried to replicate the drink at home, but to no avail. Best cookies, Vancouver pastry chef Thomas Haas chocolate sparkles. He sells 3,000 of them a week. Kind of like a brownie, sort of like a truffle. Best served warm. Sublime. Does the idea of wine tasting intimidate you? What's all this business about legs, bouquet, and terroir? How do Italian wines stack up against the famous French ones? Did you know that touring wineries in Europe is done differently than in North America? My guests coming up will help me and you develop a nose for sampling fine wine. Cecilia Botai operates her family's vineyard in Italy's Umbria region on land that's been used to grow grapes now for 25 centuries. And Cecilia is joined by my hometown wine importer. It's Wine Appreciation 101, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now I'm so happy because we're talking wine, specifically Italian wine. I've got a friend of mine who runs a winery in Umbria. Her name is Cecilia Botai, and another friend who runs a wine shop here in the Seattle area, Ruth Arista. Cecilia Botai has, for 150 years, had her family name on the La Tenuta La Valletta wine estate. And for 15 years, Cecilia has been in the family business. And Ruth Arista from Seattle area is a traveler, a wine enthusiast, and uh, I know from personal experience she really knows her wines. And she's going to complement my lack of background in wine and help us all learn a little more about enjoying some Italian wine in our travels. And Cecilia, nice to have you here. Thank you. And Ruth, how are you doing? Great. Great to be here. All Thanks, right. Rick. So, uh, and we've got some people on the line. We'll be uh, contacting uh, our, our listeners in a moment. But right now, I want to I get going on this Italian wine and this uh, European wine. And we're going to talk about appreciating wine in our travels. Cecilia, I just think it must be, by the way, Cecilia is the Italian pronunciation. It's the English. It's the English pronunciation. And the Italian pronunciation? of Cecilia. Cecilia mm-hmm. Botai. And uh, the name of your, uh, your estate is? Tenuta le velette. And what does that mean? It has a funny meaning, which has nothing to deal with wine. So the sails are called vela, and velette could be many little sails. Ah, like sails on a boat. Yeah. Okay. But it's the name of the, mainly it's the name of the area where the estate is located. And this is near Orvieto, about two it's, hours north of Rome. Uh, yeah. No, it's uh, less than two hours north of Rome. It's one hour north of Rome. It's, my wine estate is facing the cliff of Orvieto. And it's... Uh, ah, it's, dr- it's brilliant. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very nice location for the soil, for the sun, and also for the view. For the visiting tourists to yeah, come of in course. and they see Orvieto <laughs> sitting there on its tufa rock, yeah. and this is a classic hill town, and I've been coming to Cecilia's family winery, I think, for 20 years. I think uh, I think so. You were, you were a, a teenager. <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> and uh, your parents are now taking it easy, and you're running the show, is yeah. that right? Now, I'm just fascinated to me by one thing that charms me about Europe is meeting people like you. When I look at this uh, wine, bottle of wine here, it'll say Tanuta Lavalata, and your family name is on this. It's been on there for 100 years or something like this. Yeah. When And I took a group to your house a year ago, and I'll never forget you pouring each of our travelers a glass of wine, and I just looked at you, and I thought about your wine, and I saw the joy with our travelers. What a wonderful thing it is for you to bring some great wine out of the soil, as has been for generations, and share it with travelers. What, what is that like? Is, does that feel special? But, you know, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's the same for everybody. You can imagine, my family has been running this wine estate for 150 years since before Italy was even a country, as you used to say. So it's uh, it's something in my blood, in my personal blood. It's something I, I grew up with. Although I moved to Orvieto to work there permanently only 15 years ago, but it's it's something that has always been in my ears. I have always heard that. And it's something also that comes from my father's knowledge because he really transformed the wine estate into uh, a real wine estate. In the past, we always had wine there, but it was done a little different. Now it's really the main business of the family, and it's something that passionates us very much. It's not like a, an ordinary job. You, you can't you can't do that if if you don't like it. I mean, uh, there are many jobs you can do even if you don't like them. This is something you cannot do if you don't like it. You got to love the wine and sharing it with your customers, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I know in Italy, many families make wine, and your family probably made wine long before they started selling the wine. No, they always sold the wine. It was mm-hmm. always a business of the family, but my father transformed it into the business of the family. Okay. And so how much wine do you produce now? Uh, let's say around 3,500 to 400,000 uh, bottles of wine per year. 350 to 450,000 bottles. bottles. Almost a half a million bottles a year of wine yeah, produced yeah. On, your, on your family estate. Yeah. And you have an ancient cellar that you take your visitors into. It's more than ancient. This I is incredible. <laughs> Explain that because you go through a little door in the kitchen. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Etruscan cellar. I mean, the three niches, the first three niches that you meet once you get down into the cellar, you know, you have to go under the ground floor are niches which were carved 700 years before Christ by Etruscan people 
who are those who really started the wine production in our area. So, so the wine production goes back to centuries before Christ. Yeah. Right there on that yes, soil. Yes, yes. On that soil, on that area, on that place. It's uh, always been a wine area and it's very good area because we have a very good soil. We have a lot of tufa stone, which is a volcanic stone. It's very important for the wine because it's a spongy stone that keeps the water when it rains and feeds the vines with the passing of time, which is very important, especially if you have dry seasons like, remember, two years ago when you came, it was very warm, three months long. And that fact that we had tufa in the soil was very, very important. And it's also a soil which is full of minerals. So it's very good for the structure of the wines. Does the, does the soil get tired after 2,500 years of use? No, we make the soil not get tired. We give to the soil a little rest. That means we stop the vines every 30 years uh, and we plant the soil uh, with uh, special things which are called, I don't know the translation in English, but they are kind of things which feed the soil. Okay. And then three years or four years after we stop with the vines, we plant a new vines. Um, so this is done in rotation, of course, but we always have the same amount of vines planted, but we always give to the soil time to rest and to recover. And nobody has been greedy and decided to skip a rotation in order to make more wine? No, 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 no. I mean, not in my wine estate. I mean, there is a choice you have to make when you produce something that's not just for wine. You have to choose either you produce something which is average or poor quality, or you produce thick quality. This is a choice that I did not make, but I would have made if I was old enough to decide. And my father took this decision and also my ancestors, and we always choose to make high-quality stuff, whatever it is. Right, even if it means letting the soil wait, because yeah. you know the sustainability for the long term. Yeah. It's been 2,500 years, maybe 2,500 more years on yeah. the soil. <laughs> hey, we also have Ruth Arista with us. And, and Ruth, as I mentioned, is a wine enthusiast, a wine expert. She loves traveling. She runs a great little shop in my town, Arista Wine Cellars. And Ruth, as you're listening to Cecilia uh, talking about her family, uh, winery and so on, and I know you scour Europe for these kind of companies, uh, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? Well, um, just the the passion that I know that Cecilia has for that um, for the whole process of making the wine and having it so connected to the family history is something that really happens much more in Europe than here in the U.S. We just haven't been our domestic wineries haven't been around long enough to really have that kind of centuries old tradition, and that's, and that's a, what struck me about this. It's sort of an intangible thing. Oh, uh, absolutely! But it but it really adds to the experience somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pride of place and it's pride of family, so it's now, a kind of a combination. And you have uh, direct relations with small family vintners around Europe? We do, mostly through experiencing their wines first here in our area and then finding more out more about them. That's how we met Tachilia along the way and mm-hmm. how she came to come into our shop. Now, I, I think French wines are more established and probably more respected in America mm-hmm. historically than Italian wines. Um, how do you relate French and Italian wines, and is that changing? I think it's definitely changing, and the Italian wines uh, used to be known as kind of the the cheapest things you can get sort of stuff. And there were plenty of areas in Italy where they basically sold their wines in Table bulk. Wine. Yeah. Bottle of Chianti cheap. Yeah. Or they even sold the stuff to go into blending in somebody else's country. But now um, there's other situations where, especially in Italy, um, it's such a complex area. It's so full of all of these different varieties of grapes that... That's part of the adventure as you travel is definitely drinking locally and always trying house wines or going into places like this. Let's talk about traveling through a place like Italy. How, and you're shopping around and you want to learn a little bit about wine. What are some key concepts to understand? How can I tell the difference between a bottle of uh, table, table wine and a bottle of real good wine? Cecilia? You know, we have different kinds of wine. We have table wines, vino da tavola. We have IGT, EGT, and we have DOC and DOCG. Uh, this doesn't mean very much, honestly speaking. This just means either you make the wine everywhere you like or you make the wine the way you like or you respect some rules or you respect some extra rules. But this uh, has nothing to do with the quality. So if somebody is respecting the rules, they're DOC, but they could be respecting the rules poorly and producing a mediocre wine. Is that the idea? More than mediocre. More than mediocre. And Ruth shakes her head. Yeah, exactly. So I I thought, being the the, the wine rookie, that DOC meant a mark of quality, the good housekeeping seal, but not necessarily. No. Well, it it can mean uh, that they have um, put specific grapes in that bottle. 
because the DOCs are a geographically um, defined area whereby those, if they want to have that DOC or denominazione originola um, controllata, Denominazione di origine controllata. Yes, well, much better put. That that kind of um, area has specific stipulations on what kind of uh, grapes can go in the bottle and even in some cases how much of the grape can be produced on a vine to go in the bottle so that there's some control of quality. But just like myself, if I ever got a bunch of paint and a paintbrush in my hand, I would never produce a painting that's, say, you know, Picasso did, because I don't have the talent. So that's there a good can, analogy. You could have the right brush, the right paint. Yes. You could let it dry the right way. Or you can give me certain ingredients. I'll still make a really bad pot of soup. And there are people who will try to make wine under oh. the rules but still won't produce okay. something. Okay. So this is something that I'm curious about. Let's say you've got a piece of land in Umbria, and the neighbor has a piece of land in Umbria. Same yep. sun, same soil, same uh, hard work. But you might have a better, what is the word, enologist? Enologo. Or enologa. Now, what, tell me about that, because that is probably the magic uh, it's, formula, it's, it? it's It's not the magic, but it's a very, very important person who helps in the um, process of making the wine. The enologist is the person who helps into the choice of uh, maybe which grapes are, are good to be experienced in that part of Italy, uh, who decides uh, uh, when it's time, together with, the, of course, with the owner of the estate, when it's time to pick the grapes, how to process the wines, the wine grows. The wine is a living thing, element, liquid, whatever you want to call it. So uh, he or she uh, controls the process of the fermentation, the processing of uh, storage, the wine, when to bottle the wine, uh, which kind of filters you have to use, which kind of barrels, if you use oak barrels, you have to use, and so on. It's a very, very important person. Cecilia, so is this person more of a wizard or more of a scientist? First of all, it's a passionate person because he or she has to love wine. And then it's uh, it's usually someone who studied agriculture and who studied the, the – there is a school for being an enologist. So who studied winemaking? So it's uh, it's not as many, many people have the idea that there is a lot of chemical in the, to the wine. It's not that. No, no. A filtering system is not nothing chemical. It's just the way you filter the wine. You clean the wine. Is it. wine generally chemical-free? or is I mean, is there an equivalent of organic wine or, or is that a concern for consumers? Oh, there's definitely um, uh, organic wines and um – in each country, there's a different way that that is uh, regulated by the government. So in but Italy, the slow food movement would actually apply to winemaking also? Absolutely. And there are plenty of wineries that have always for centuries produced wine organically and have never gotten a, a complete like regulatory label for it. So That's um, just their ethic. That's their ethic. Now, what, it's, what does that – it's maybe more healthy, but from a taste point of view, is it actually tastier or better wine if it's organic or does that really a, a matter? Again, it comes back to whether or not they can make good wine because you can make very good, delicious, um, long-lived organic wine, and then you can also make some that are a little iffy. So that's the win-win. And we're talking mm -hmm. about wine. Ruth, would you please open this bottle? We're going we're gonna oh, to yeah. do a little drinking here on the radio. So Ruth's going to open uh, a bottle of uh, Tenuta la Valletta. Uh, am I pronouncing that correctly, Cecilia? Tenuta le velette. Thank you. Tenuta le velette. Oh, there is a, there <laughs> nice, is a sound. nice sound. Huh? <laughs> what do they say? Uh, in French, that's uh, Julie Brie. Uh, happy, happy noise. When they pop open the cork, there's oh, actually yeah, a word for it. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful Don't noise. Don't say anything. We just listen to the sounds wow. in Italy. That's, uh, oh, that's good. Okay, so Ruth is going <coughs> to... Oh, ooh. <laughs> Cheers. There's a little glass. Thank you very much. For you, Rick. I'll say um, grazie. Grazie. There. And this is a wonderful uh, Orvieto that we're pouring here that does come from Cecilia's estate. And I believe it's a specific vineyard designate, isn't it? This is uh, what you have on the label. This is just in front of... Uh, the villa where we used to live, where my mother used to live, and where the vineyards are, in fact. Mm. So, so you know, you can picture where these grapes were. Yes, I know. Wow. Now, when, uh, first of all, we look at this and we say chin chin in Italian, or what do chin -chin we say? Chin chin or salute. I, I heard oh, chin chin is only for children, is that true? Or? No, no, no. no. So you, can, you might chin -chin say chin chin. Or yeah. salute, salute to your health, yeah. So let's go. Oh, very nice. Oh, yeah. Have a little sip. 
So, Ruth, you're the wine enthusiast. You swung it around a little bit, mm-hmm. and then you gave it a sniff. Mm-hmm. You swung it around. Why? I swirled the glass around because it brings some air in, which helps the scent come out. So you want to um, just kind of ruffle the feathers here? and, and Yes. Like it's mm-hmm. a lot like having water going over bubbling the rocks in a bubbling brook. It brings the oxygen in and helps to release and wait, wait, release the, the scent in it and wake up the wine. So you swirl it around in a glass. All right. So we have the same, um, the ritual, the, the, the legs, the bouquet, the swirling, the mm-hmm. sipping, the mm-hmm. sucking air in, all that. Is it exactly the same for wine tasting for red wine or for white wine? Or do you look goofy by swirling white wine as opposed to red wine? Generally, we won't swirl sparkling wines, but okay. any still wine, yeah, you can swirl those. Legs, do legs work uh, for red and white equally? Well, you know, the leg thing isn't as, uh, uh, let's see, isn't as much a part of wine tasting these days as it, it used to be. Okay, so people um, used to swirl it up and then see how, how, how the drips were sort of organized on the yes, side of the glass. Yes, and it's often called tears. Uh, yes. is what we call it. And so that's out of style now. Well, looking at the tiers will tell you a couple things about the wine. It'll let you know whether it could be a sweet wine because if, with thicker tiers, it could be the, the sugar that's clinging mm-hmm. or it could be a wine that has a higher glycerin or higher alcohol content slightly, okay. which helps it cling or hang on there. But now, like if it doesn't have that, it's not a sign of, of anything negative at all. It's okay. just a look. Yeah. So more important would be swirling it to um, aerate it to bring mm-hmm. out the flavor. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is more to learn about sampling Cecilia's wine, but let's let the bottle breathe for a minute as we get ready to discover more of what to look for in our next sip. Wine Tasting 101 continues in a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and Traveler's Haiku. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. If what you send makes it on our show... We'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. Both of today's haiku submissions come from listeners in Seattle. This one was written by Bill Phillips. Blossoms before breeze in gardens around the world. Continental drift. And this one is from Roberta Johnson-Hines. In a fetal pose, I was fed tiny pretzels flying on a plane. So again, we're looking for your submissions. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live. Record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard. Or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Ruth and Cecilia will have me sipping a little more fine wine from Cecilia's 2,000-year-old cellars coming right up as we travel with Rick Steves. Hallo, mein Name is Jürgen Gobin. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. This was German for saying, my name is Jürgen Gobin. I am from Germany and I travel with Rick Steves. Mein Name is Jürgen Gobin. Ich bin von Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK I'm Rick Steves. Today, on Travel with Rick Steves, we're tasting wine from the Umbrian vineyards of Cecilia Botai, along with Ruth Arista, who owns a wine shop in my hometown. Now, how do I get maximum flavor to judge a wine? Um, we've swirled it. We've, uh, we, we've Had a good sniff? Yeah. That's really important, I think. You've got to put sniff. your nose in. Because you know what it's, it's like tasting if you have a cold? You can't eat your dinner. You don't. You can't taste a really good chocolate So you pie. really, you're not shy. You stick your nose into that glass. Yes. yes. And have a couple of good sniffs. Right. Now, yeah. and when you sip, I've enjoyed sucking air 
through my mouth. It's it, almost like I'm whistling mm-hmm. in, backwards, and it really brings more flavor. Is that, um, is that an, a reasonable way to get the flavor, or do you chew it, or what do you do to get the maximum no, flavor? No, no, you, you have to have the wine around all your mouth because you have different parts in the mouth. One is uh, to taste the sweetness. One is to taste the bitterness of the wine, huh. and another one is to taste the complexity of the wine. So you, sh- you should really have the wine going around your mouth very carefully, and then okay. you can have it. Okay, then that sounds pretty like, uh, yeah, really, to me. But this is, a, is this a complex or a simple wine? This is, first, it's complicated to say. This is, I'm used to describing this wine as a serious, uh, well-done, easy wine. Because uh, one problem, and I think Ruth can tell all the people, one problem in the wines, all the wines, is that you have under the name Orvieto, like any other wine, you might have many, many kinds of wines. And it's very important to get the right wine. So I'm not just talking about the Orvieto, but unfortunately there are some Orvietos on the world that really are even less than nothing. So it's important to have the right wine and the good Orvieto wine. Uh, it's a wine that it's easy in the sense that you can have it anytime you feel like having a nice glass of wine. It's a very relaxing wine. It doesn't pretend to be a too strong wine. It has to be an easy, well-done, pleasant wine. Okay, Cecilia, please take a sip and just think out loud as you roll that around your tongue. You made this wine. Mm-hmm. What, what do you experience as you go to the different taste buds you talked about? What I experience... Is that uh, is the wine I would like to have done, which is uh, in my glass? It's a uh, this wine is exactly what uh, an Orvieto has to be. So it's a as I told, it's a wine for any moment, which has its own body, its own characteristic. It has a nice flavor. It has a nice bouquet. You can smell a nice bouquet. It has the back flavors that I expect to have from an Orvieto, which is uh, fruits, which is flowers, which is a little bit of bitter, uh, bitter almonds. And it's it's the Orvieto the way it should okay, be. Okay, help me. Take another sip. And, and where are these almonds and where are these flowers? And as we In sip my- this, I mean, for a white wine, um, the Orvieto is uh, such a beautiful summer wine, but we are also happening to be uh, to taste this. We're tasting it actually at room temperature, which is sometimes some people say all white wine should be chilled. But um, uh, mm. one thing to note, which we've talked about before a little bit, is uh, wine will show its faults when it's at this temperature. And this is a, a wonderful glass without having to be chilled you know it's a great great mm-hmm. kind of brisk style with a little bit of grapefruit in there and i want to get tasted both of you mm-hmm. ruth and cecilia and tell me about this grapefruit and these flowers and these did you say hazelnuts where is it mm-hmm. how do you find that almonds mm-hmm. one thing to do when tasting if you want and 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 the nice thing the only reason mm-hmm. to do this is it helps you recollect the wine it's not mm-hmm. a snobby thing to stop mm-hmm. and do these steps it's mostly to say um, maybe this will help me remember it Mm. and or think about what I might have it with with the foods. Mm. So um, one way to taste the wine is to think about how it starts, where the middle goes, and where the end goes. So it's kind of like the attack, the middle palate, as they might say, and then the finish. I like that. That's yeah. new for me. It's like three yeah. little little parts of it to so help you take it apart. So the taste has a story, a plot. Yes, an opening, a, a centerpiece, and then the grand and finale. And for me, a great wine worth spending 50 euros for the bottle mm. is a wine that has a great ending. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And They're very like, disappointing when they end short. I love, and, there's, and I'm not a wine enthusiast, but I know a, a, a well-chosen 50-euro bottle of wine Boy, oh boy, the ending is something you want to write home about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like buying porcini mushrooms in season or out of season almost. Oh, There's, yes. You see what I mean? Yeah. There's that magnificence. I travel with my film crew, and I've got one of my cameramen that almost spends a good part of his wage on great wine. And I really like traveling with him because after a long day at work, <laughs> we go out, he buys a bottle of great wine, and he knows it. And I can tell you, if you choose it well, it's it's worth the extra money. Cecilia, mm-hmm. I am of the frame of mind that Red wine is much more serious and much more complex and uh, just more quality than white wine. But I know in Umbria, white wine is really the production. Isn't that true? Uh, in my area, I have to say the first wine that was produced was white wine. So the Etruscan people used to make the Orvieto, was a medium dry style of Orvieto, and it was a white wine. 
Uh, you're talking in Roman times or in, before? Before, so before. Etruscan, centuries Etru- 700 before. Seven hundred years BC. And you know what kind of wine it was? It was a medium. What was it? A medium. Medium dry? sweet. A medium, or medium sweet. Medium sweet or medium dry is the I same. Guess that's the it's same, just isn't a, it? yeah. And the reason for which the wine was medium sweet or medium dry is that the Etruscan people used to have the fermentation of the wines in their Etruscan cellars. I mean the cellars carved in tufa and since in those cellars it's always cold right. not all the sugar had the possibility to transform into alcohol this is the same way we do it nowadays so we stop the fermentation with a cooling system mm. so they had the wine with the fermentation stopped and the wine was a little sweeter than the dry orvieto we serve nowadays uh, this doesn't mean that, that all the orvietos are dry no and about the white wines and the red wines I mean to make a good White wine is much more difficult than make a good red wine. This is what people don't know. But red wines are good if they are good. White wines are good if they are good. Mm-hmm. You can't say a red wine is better than a white. It's pretty much... Uh, so uh, the, the notion that a sophisticated uh, uh, person who appreciates fine wine prefers red wine, that's not correct. No, 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 no. Because I've got to say, this is a very good white wine. It's, a com- it's, it's just a wonderful you. wine. I yeah. hope so. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, you, you have a wine for each occasion. I mean, mm. for instance, the, the, it's very important what you have with the wine. You have nothing, you have something. What you have, what, which kind of food are you having with the wine? The season. I mean, I would never, ever have a bottle of, uh, of a good uh, red wine, a full-body red wine together with a grilled fish. I mean, mm. it's horrible. Or to have a, a nice light wine with a... Uh, a big stack. I mean, it's nonsense. You kill the stack or kill the wine or both. I mean, it's... Uh, Even a rosé. I think a rosé doesn't have a very respected image among a lot of people, but on a nice hot afternoon in southern France, a rosé yeah, purchased it's a, in southern France can be very good. Rosé is one of the few wines which goes well together with fresh tomatoes. Fresh tomatoes are very difficult to combine with the wines. And rosé, if it's a well-done rosé, because rosé is a very, very complicated wine to produce. Uh, so it's the best combination. But the reason for which rosé has a, such a low image is that people use sometimes to make the rosé just mixing the white with the red. And this oh, is, is that right? That's not how you do that. L- that's that's <laughs> just horrible. But rosé is a, it's a very good wine if you know how to make it. But it's not for any time. On the rosés, too, uh, one of the things that's happened is, is they uh, a lot of people don't realize when they go to Europe that the rosés are so dry-styled. They are a very sophisticated wine, and when you um, uh, get a glass of them, if you happen to taste them with your eyes closed, you would never imagine that it's the same as one of the um, very tutti-frutti styles that we've had made here domestically in the U.S. Okay, so in your travels, you can give rosé a little more, uh, a little more serious look, yes. a little more respect. When you're traveling around uh, Italy or, or France as a, as, a, as a tourist who wants to uh, enjoy the wine, uh, what are some tips? Ruth, you've done a lot of this. Well, um, it's very different than uh, wine touring here. When you go there, it's very good to call ahead and make appointments, and there's ways to find out about that, either through the local um, information offices and things like that, and to find out if they even have the ability to host you for tasting. So don't just drop in. Yeah. It's, it's, Chile, is that your experience? Do, do you welcome guests, but you want them to call first? Yes, because if you want to do a wine tasting properly, you need time. Right. And it's a nonsense for us to do wine tasting just having people drinking a glass of wine. If you just want to drink a glass of wine, you have bars in Orvieto, you have wine shops, you go there and... And you have some vintners. And you have some wine. You That's have some it. vintners that say degustation yeah. or whatever, come yeah. in and taste, and they're, they're prepared. But if you have a certain vintner in mind, you should contact them first. Yes. Okay. Now, when you're traveling, you want to know a little bit about key words when you're trying to appreciate wine and communicate with people. I know that's the case in my, from my experience in France. If you don't know to tell them what kind of wine you're looking for, they don't know what kind of wine to offer you. What are some key words in Italian if I'm coming to your house to enjoy the wine? Well, I don't know. I don't have a key word. I'm trying. First of all, I ask the people, when do they drink the wine? What do they drink the wine with or for? I mean, mm. uh if they say, you know, I'm a big, big steak eater and I like very much having this or that food, I mean, I tell them, this is the one you should taste. Or if they say, you know, I like something very easily to under- easy to understand, something for any moment. So 
then I suggest something else. I can say a body full wine or a medium bodied wine or... And if you want to say a big bodied wine, corposo. Corposo. I like that word because I like a big bodied wine, but corposo is not necessarily a better wine, is it? No, 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 no. It means the structure of the wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing is obviously better. You can have a light wine, which is much better than a body full wine because the wine is, is better than the other just because it's better done. Depending on the, the, the purpose of the wine. How yeah. you will be, uh, hey, we've got Juliana on the phone from Morristown in New Jersey. And Juliana is uh, interested in, uh, I think, matching the, the regional foods with the regional wines. Mm-hmm. Thanks for waiting and nice to have you on the show. What's, what's, what's on your mind? Well, I'm looking forward to returning to Italy and I'd like to uh, do some more wine tasting this time. And I had some questions about learning about the local and regional specialties before I go and what are some things to look out for. Great. If you just hold on, I'm going to have a little more of the wine here. And, uh, and now <laughs> can you can be jealous. <laughs> be jealous. Okay. What, what is your question? Uh, what's a good way to learn about the uh, local food specialties and local wine specialties before you go on your trip? I would say... Uh, one of the best things to do is to contact the people in your area that sell wines and if they can um, and, and do host tastings, whether okay. they're paid or not. Um, it's a very good way to go to the tastings and just try everything, even though you might have an affinity, say, for a certain t- grape varietal and they're not tasting that that day. Go ahead and try everything anyway. There's this notion of terroir where you're connecting the soil, the produce, the sunshine, the culture, and the wine. And I think it's really... It, it heightens the whole wine experience if you are tying it in with the local pro, pro, produce and, mm-hmm. the, and the cheese and so on. Is that is that yeah. right? And then also I think when you go, if you have a chance to go to different restaurants, uh, uh, you know, of those regional foods there where you're, while you're in New Jersey or wherever, and can ask them for the pairings that they would suggest with those foods and be open to trying a wine that you may never have heard of and ask a lot of questions about it. Um, hopefully you'll find the kind of places where the waiters and uh, food people are open to telling you about the wines and not going to be snobby about it or anything, but hopefully they'll answer all your questions on them so that as you order that dish at the restaurant, ask which wine to have with it, because that can be a wonderful um, epiphany to uh, have those magical matches go on where you never thought you would might uh, enjoy, I say, a red with a certain uh, type of sauce. Thank you so much. Hey, Juliana, you also had a question about, well, this matching of food. I think uh, Cecilia calls it a, a fine marriage, right? Yeah. Can you talk uh, just a little I, bit about that? I'm used, to, I'm used to describe the importance of the combination wine and food, like the importance of a combination between two people when they marry. I'm used to saying, you know, if you have the right combination, wine and food emphasize each other's. If you have the wrong combination, they might kill each other's. And this is just like a marriage. If you have the wrong partner, poor you. If you have the right partner, this will be the most pleasant way to live your life. Juliana, do you got that? Thank you. Words to live by. Thanks a lot for your call. Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. So when we're talking about experiencing the wines of Europe. We are, we've grown up drinking Californian wines and so on, and there's Californian wines are making great strides in respectability, and, and you find them sold and enjoyed in Europe quite a bit. But do they have a different personality because one is, is uh, made in America in it, with a different style? Yes, I would say definitely. Uh, it's not a qualitative thing. It's just a no, different style. No, no, no. It's a different style. I mean, uh, American wines are usually very strong wines, bodiful wines, and this comes also from the soil. So your soil has been unexploited for so long. Our soil has been exploited for so long that uh, everything, since everything goes into the roots, which then transfer the the feeding into the vines and into the grapes, uh, of course, this makes a a large difference. So sometimes you might have U.S. wines that I respect a lot, that I like a lot, very, very bodyful as compared to the Italian wines. Then there is pretty much the effect of the oak barrel into the wines. Uh, we use for some of our wines oak barrels, the barrique, the 225 liters each, the, the, the small barrels. And we used to using French or American oak produced in France, I mean, worked in France, which is the difference. The American oak is much stronger, more robust as compared to the French oak. So we use more American oak when we have a more robust vintage, and we use more French oak when we have a lighter vintage. 
Of course, the American people use the American oak, which is more robust. So possibly the difference is sometimes in the body of the wine and also the grapes. They get a different sun. They get a, they get a different soil. I mean, of course, this plays a large role into the final result that is into a bottle of wine, which doesn't mean the Italian's wine are better than the U.S. wines. They are just different. Mm-hmm. That's it. This has been a fascinating introduction to the art and love of wine. And I want to just give uh, Ruth her glass there, and I want to thank uh, Cecilia Botai from uh, La Tenuta La Valletta, uh, near Orvieto, wonderful wine, and Ruth Arista from Aretha Wine Cellars in Edmonds, Washington. I want to thank you both very much for introducing us to uh, the wonders of wine. Happy travels. And thanks for listening. This is Rick Steves, and you're traveling with Rick Steves. Cheers. 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 Chin chin. like to add a thought to today's discussion, you can post your comments on our website. Go to ricksteves.com and look for the message boards in our radio section. This is where you'll find our program archives and where you're welcome to add to any of our discussions. You can also participate in our message boards in the graffiti wall section of our website. Hundreds of other travelers post their comments on dozens of travel topics right there. We're all in the same traveler's school of hard knocks, and this is where we compare notes. You don't need to register. Just go to ricksteves.com and you can be part of Travel with Rick Steves. Amore, amore, amore. Bella ragazza. Americana, eh? Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program. And listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include Sonia Grosset, Rachel Unk, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.